Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Philip Goff will join us to discuss the purpose of the universe. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, why are we here and what is the point of existence? Thoughts have really been dominated by a dichotomy of traditional religion and secular atheism. But in his new book, Dr. Philip Goff argues that it's time to move on for both God and atheism. Dr. Goff joins us again. He's a professor of philosophy at Durham University. His research focuses on consciousness and the ultimate nature of reality. He is best known for defending panpsychism, which is the view that consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. He published several books, including Consciousness and Fundamental Reality and Galileo's Error. And he has penned the new book, Why? The Purpose of the Universe. And joins us today to discuss this very fascinating topic. Dr. Goff, thank you so much for joining us again on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to chatting again. Oh, great to have you back. Certainly a fascinating book. Addresses deepest of all questions. Why? What is the purpose of the universe? I'm curious, why did you decide to put this book together? Well, it's actually not a book I would have imagined writing five years ago. It's been quite a journey. As you say, I think so many people feel they have to fit into this dichotomy of, do you believe in the God of traditional Western religion? Or are you a secular atheist? You know, it's like, whose side are you on? Richard Dawkins or the Pope? And I guess I've just slowly come to think that both of these worldviews are inadequate. Both of them have things they can't explain about reality. That's what ultimately led me to this book, trying to point out things that both of these worldviews can't explain, and then to explore the much neglected middle ground between these two polar opposites difference between the subjective and the objective and these two worlds which in a way don't talk to one another. I think that's a good jumping off point actually. I think it was very much Galileo as the father of modern science who separated out consciousness with its subjective qualities that we can't capture in mathematical language and physical corporeal reality that we can capture in mathematics And Descartes said, science is all about the latter, and we can describe it in the language of mathematics. So that was a wonderful project that went extraordinarily well, but the whole project was premised upon this very dualistic separation of consciousness on the one hand and the physical world on the other. And maybe because the project of studying the physical world went so well, people have said, oh, well, maybe that other stuff isn't really real. Maybe it's not part of the world we seem to be making so much progress on. We can just lop it off. But actually, both of these things are genuine aspects of reality, and we need to find a way of bringing them into harmony, bringing them into a single unified theory of the whole of reality whether or not science can actually inform us about purpose, because if you're asking about purpose, that almost presumes, just by the question, an intent. Yeah. Well, there's a sort of 
tension, isn't there? On the one hand, the Enlightenment aim was to be dispassionate, objective, follow the evidence where it leads. On the other hand, there was a viewpoint that we need our science to be purposeless, to focus on mechanical, mathematical laws that are abstracted from any kind of purpose or goal-directedness. This was very much the move from the picture of the universe shaped by the philosopher Aristotle before the scientific revolution in which things had purposes built into them to the picture of reality which came to dominate after the scientific revolution where we have meaningless, purposeless mechanisms governing the world. So we have in a way tension between dispassionately following the evidence where it leads on the one hand, on the other hand, trying to cling to this picture of a meaningless, purposeless universe. I actually think in the last 30 or 40 years, these two enlightenment ideals have come into conflict because we found what is often referred to as fine tuning in physics. This is the discovery of the last few decades that for life to be possible, certain numbers in physics had to fall in a certain quite narrow range. So perhaps the example that's most baffled cosmologists revolves around dark energy which is the force that powers the accelerating expansion of the universe. So in 1998, we discovered the universe is not only expanding, but accelerating. And once you do the calculations, it becomes apparent that if that force had been a little bit stronger, everything would have shot apart so quickly that no two particles would have ever met. We wouldn't have had stars or planets or any kind of structural complexity and therefore no life. Whereas if that force had been a little bit weaker, it wouldn't have counteracted gravity. And so the whole universe would have collapsed back on itself a split second after the Big Bang. So for life to be possible, for any kind of structural complexity to be possible, the strength of this force had to be like Goldilocks porridge, just right, not too strong, not too weak, just right. Fundamentally, we have a choice Either it was just a wild, unbelievable fluke that these numbers in our physics were right for life. And that's just one example I've given you. There are many, 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 many numbers in our current understanding of physics. So either it's just a complete fluke, and to my mind, that's too improbable to take seriously, or the numbers in our physics are as they are because they are the right numbers for life. In other words, that there is some kind of goal-directedness towards life at the fundamental level of reality. Now, that's weird. That's unexpected. It doesn't fit with the picture of reality we've got used to over the past few hundred years. But I think really we ought to dispassionately follow the evidence where it's leading. And that seems to me where the evidence is currently pointing to. Physicists have also sampled the space of all possible constants and shown that you can get complexity with different types of constants, different types of universes, and that if you produced an infinite number of different possible universes, that you might get several that happen to produce things like life or complexity, and that we happen to just be one of the many. Good. Yeah, those are all really important points. I think two issues you pointed to there. So firstly, to be clear, nobody's saying that the values our constants have are the only possible numbers that would have generated life. But I think what is pretty clear, the more we explore this possibility space, that the numbers 
required for life are very rare in a very rare range. If you just randomly change the numbers in our physics so what you know we can run computer simulations, see what universe would have resulted with different values. And we can map out a kind of possibility space. I have some quite accessible diagrams in the book to illustrate this. And the possible universes in which life is permissible from varying the numbers are incredibly narrow or incredibly small. So to take that example, we really needed the strength of dark energy that powers the expansion of the universe. We really needed it to be an incredibly small number without going into the negative. It had, If it had been a more, in the relevant units, been a, a sort of more normal number that you find in physics, like one, a half, a quarter, we wouldn't have had life. If it had been negative, we wouldn't have had life. It had to be this peculiar number of being incredibly small without going in, passing over into the negative. Take another example, the strong nuclear force that binds together the elements in the nucleus of the atom. You can represent that with a number 0.007. If it had been 0.008 or 0.006, in either case, we wouldn't have had life. In, in one of those options, we would have just had hydrogen. Many of these possible universes, actually, we would have turned out just to have hydrogen, the simplest of elements, only one kind of chemical combination. With the other possibility, all of the hydrogen would have burnt off, water would have been impossible. So it, it's not that our universe is like the only possible way in which we could have had life. But it's in that very rare range in which life is possible. But I think the other thing you pointed to is perhaps the most popular response, namely the multiverse response. So the idea that, well, maybe there are very many universes with different numbers in their physics. So in some, gravity stronger, in some it's weaker, and so on. And so if you have enough variety, then statistically, it becomes likely that one of them just by chance is going to have the right numbers for life. If enough people play the lottery, someone's going to hit the jackpot. And to be honest, this is the explanation I used to go for. I've always thought fine tuning needed explaining, but I used to think the multiverse looked like the more plausible explanation. What's changed my mind after over a long period of time, I've become persuaded by philosophers of probability, that there is some fallacious reasoning going on in this inference from fine-tuning to a multiverse. This is the charge of what's called the inverse gambler's fallacy. So it's this can get very technical, but just to set up the idea with an analogy. So suppose, Charles, you and I go to a casino tonight. We walk into a small room and, and we just see one person playing roulette and they're having an incredible run of luck. They're just winning and winning and winning. It's unbelievable. And I say to you, wow, there must be lots of people playing in the casino tonight. And you say to me, well, Philip, what are you talking about? We've just seen this one guy. What's it got to do with what's going on elsewhere in the casino? And I say, well, look, if, if there are thousands, tens of thousands of people playing in the casino tonight, then it's not so surprising that somebody's going to have a, an incredible run of luck. And that's just what we've observed. Somebody having an incredible run of luck. Now, everyone agrees that's a fallacy because our observational evidence is just this one particular person, call her Sarah, you know, having an incredible run of luck. No matter how many people there are or aren't in other rooms in the casino, it doesn't make it any more likely that this particular person we've observed is going to have an incredible run of luck. So everyone agrees that's a fallacy, but it looks like indiscernible reasoning 
by the multiverse theorist, at least if they're inferring from the fine tuning to a multiverse, they look around and they say, oh my God, our universe has the right numbers for life against incredible odds. There must be lots of other universes out there with really terrible numbers. But again, that looks like exactly the same fallacy. Our observational evidence is that this universe is fine tuned. And no matter how many other universes there are or aren't out there, it doesn't make it any more likely that this universe is fine tuned. So I was really just over a long period of time, drag kicking and screaming into thinking, actually, the, the multiverse explanation really doesn't work. And we need to look to more radical options. You could say, well, sure, the universe is fine-tuned, but it's fine-tuned for a lot of things that happen to be conducive in this particular universe. Structures, you wouldn't have planets, and life just might be one of the many possibilities that arise from it, but not necessarily the purpose or the function of this particular fine-tuning. It just happens to be one of many. That's a really good point. So some people use the argument to make the case for God. You know, God must have filled with the numbers to create human beings. That might be a very anthropocentric explanation. What I try to do in this book is just get down to the minimal hypothesis that fine-tuning supports. What I think that is, is, is what I call in, in the book, the value selection hypothesis. So what I think what is striking about fine-tuning and why we think it needs explanation is that the numbers in our physics are, on, are in the rare range that allow for things of great value. Life, intelligent life, complex structures, ultimately people that can write poetry and fall in love and contemplate their own existence. All these things are possible in our universe. Whereas as far as we can work out in with most other combinations of the numbers, the universe would be compatible with little or no value. You know, if you've just got a un universe of hydrogen, the simplest element, you've got little or no value there. Or, you know, if the universe collapsed back on itself a split second after the Big Bang. So I think that it, that is what's striking. That is what needs explanation. And ultimately, as I say, we face a choice. Either it's just fluke that the numbers are compatible with a universe of great value, or there is some kind of directedness towards the possibility of things of value. So that's the what I hope is the sort of minimal hypothesis that's being supported here. But you can take that in a range of directions, and I consider a wide range of hypotheses for making sense of that. Explores the idea of consciousness as something fundamental to the universe. Yes. Yeah, so what I'm wrestling with in this book is, I think, a really underexplored issue of making sense of the evolution of consciousness. So I, I do think consciousness evolved, but I think it's very challenging to make sense of that because natural selection is just interested in behavior because its behavior is the only thing that, that matters for survival. How you behave equates to how well you survive. And I think with the recent rapid pro progress in AI and robotics, it's become apparent that you can have incredibly complex information processing and behavior without any kind of inner life or consciousness whatsoever. And therefore, it seems natural selection could have made survival mechanisms, that is to say, incredibly complicated mechanisms that track features of their environment and that initiate survival conducive behavior without having any kind of subjective inner experience at all. For, for any behavior associated with consciousness that's good for survival, you can imagine a mechanism that performs that same function. So there's a deep mystery here. Why did consciousness evolve at all? 
So the hypothesis I explore to try and address this is what I call panagentialism. This is the view that not only consciousness, but rational agency somehow goes down to the fundamental level of reality, that particles exhibit some incredibly crude form of rational agency or proto-rational agency. Now, this seems absurd at first because you're thinking of the kind of rational agency a human being enjoys, which is the result of millions of years of evolution. Human beings can deliberate and do probabilistic reasoning and do mathematics. And I'm not suggesting particles are able to do any of these. The suggestion is rather that particles have incredibly crude, simple forms of desire or conscious inclination, and that they are disposed to rationally respond to those desires or inclinations by pursuing the object of desire. So I think it it is a rational response to do what you feel like doing, do what you desire to do. But it's a very crude form of rational response. If you're a mature human being, you and, and you know you desire to do something, you can deliberate about it. You think, is it a good idea to eat this chocolate? Is it is it sensible to lash out in anger? But the thought is, if you're an incredibly simple physical entity like a particle, you don't consciously understand anything about the world. You don't have the capacity to rationally deliberate. All that you have available to you is the simplest kind of rational response, which is do what you feel like doing. That is, I think, the crudest form of rational response. Do what you want. Follow your desires. And that, and the thought is that's why at the level of fundamental physics, we get a very predictable, near-deterministic universe. But then as we get more complex forms of life with conscious understanding of the reality around them, that rational agency flowers, blossoms into something more complex and elaborate. Okay, why why believe this very peculiar picture of the world? Well, really, it's to address this issue about the evolution of consciousness. The idea is once we have that panagentialist view in place, all we need then is natural selection. Because now natural selection has a motivation to make creatures with conscious understanding of the world around them. Because once they have conscious understanding, they're going to respond rationally to that and they're going to survive well. So I do think consciousness evolved, but in order to make sense of that, in order to explain why natural selection made conscious organisms rather than complicated survival mechanisms, I do think we need some kind of radical picture like the panagentialist one I've just described. Theories of consciousness integration information theory tries to look at the types of physical systems that are out there that could potentially give rise to things like consciousness. There may be lots of different structures in the universe that have the correct architecture that can give rise to consciousness. Yes, there has been a an emergence recently of certain non-reductionist scientific theories. You know, science has traditionally been dominated by a very reductionist idea that really it's physics running the show and what we do is just determined by the arrangements of particles in our brains and maybe there's a bit of random chanciness from quantum mechanics, but that's about it. But there have emerged neuroscientists like Kevin Mitchell, who thinks free will, which emerges from consciousness, has a role to play in determining what happens in our brains. The assembly theory of the chemist Lee Cronin and the physicist Sarah Walker, which is a radically anti-reductionist theory where memory is somehow embodied in the physical world and helps with the construction of complex chemistry, complex life. So I, I feel actually that the views I'm 
putting forth here really fit in with that emerging tradition. But I think it's important also to distinguish the scientific from the philosophical questions at play here. With respect to consciousness, I think the scientific task is to try and work out which kinds of brain activity go along with consciousness and integrated information theory referred to is, is one attempt at doing that. And that's a really important scientific task. But that's not all we want from a theory of consciousness. What we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of why certain kinds of brain activity go along with a subjective inner life, a subjective inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes. Why should subjective experience have anything to do with consciousness? You know, if you look at the story we get from neuroscience of neural firings and chemical transmissions and electrochemical signaling, on the face of it, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with subjective experience. And even if we work out scientifically which kinds of subjective experience are correlated with which kinds of electrochemical activity, and I'm confident we can do that, we'll still have this philosophical question of why does consciousness go along with physical activity. And there, I think that it essentially becomes a philosophical question. And, you know, there has been a bit of controversy recently, actually, the last few months over the integrated information theory. And I think maybe certain scientists are worried that it mixes up science and philosophy and people are going to think it's not real science. But at the end of the day, I think we do need both science and philosophy to make progress on consciousness. And that's the case I'm really making in this book that we need philosophers and scientists working hand in glove to make progress on consciousness. And I think that's really what we're starting to see happening recently. So it's very exciting. How do we as individuals then make our way through our daily lives living with purpose? Most of the book is just the cold-blooded scientific and philosophical case that we need to take something like goal-directedness or purposeness as a fundamental aspect of reality, that we need to take that seriously, strange as it seems, that we should follow the evidence where it leads. I mean, in many ways, I think we're kind of a little bit in denial about the fine-tuning. It's maybe a little bit like in the 16th century when we first started getting evidence that we're not in the center of the universe. And people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of reality they got used to. And nowadays, we kind of tend to scoff at them. We say, oh, those fools, why didn't they just follow the evidence? But I think every generation absorbs a worldview it can't see beyond. And I really think that's what's going on with the fine tuning at the moment, actually. We're not dispassionately following the evidence where it leads because it doesn't fit with how we've got used to thinking of science and the nature of reality. So, so, so that's most of the book. But of course, on this very biggest of big questions, it is interesting to think about the implications for human existence. So that's what I do in the first and last chapters of the book. And so I do think about how cosmic purpose might connect to spiritual practice, spiritual communities, even political struggle. And broadly speaking, I take a kind of middle way here. I I always like the middle way options. So, you know, one extreme you have, for example, the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, who thinks if the universe has no purpose, it's all meaningless and pointless. He even says we might as well just kill each other. Not only religious philosophers, the uh, I talk about the antinatalist philosopher David Benatar, who thinks life is so pointless. We shouldn't kill ourselves, but it's immoral to have children. 
the moral thing to do is to let is to let the human race pass out of existence this very curious philosophy one that's almost become a religion in its own right in fact okay so that's one extreme the other extreme is a familiar secular humanist option that you know cosmic purpose would just be irrelevant we make our own meaning that's it my colleague david Faraci talking about my book he said oh maybe you've got a good case here but you know i don't care it doesn't affect the meaning of my life so i take a middle way i think we can have perfectly meaningful lives in the absence of cosmic purpose if we pursue meaningful activities like kindness the pursuit of knowledge creativity we can have quite meaningful lives and i think I had quite a meaningful life before the last few years when I started to take seriously the idea of cosmic purpose. On the other hand, if there is cosmic purpose, there's maybe the potential that we can live more meaningful lives. I think we we want our lives to make a difference. If you could, in some small way, contribute to the purposes of the whole of reality, that's about as big a difference as you can imagine making. So I have in my own life, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, found what we might call cosmic purposivism, living in hope of a greater purpose that one's life can connect up with as as a meaningful way of living one's life. So I'm not trying to be dogmatic here. I'm not trying to say this. There's one, one and only one way of living a meaningful life. But I'm maybe presenting options that are distinct from the two more familiar options of traditional religion on the one hand and secular humanism on the other. Here's another option that you might want to think about. You might get some meaning out of. We were talking with Dr. Philip Goff, his new book, Why the Purpose of the Universe. Dr. Goff, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks very much. It's been a wonderful conversation. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.